pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, their brothers and sisters, to worship you. As we sang, Lord, we pray, speak for your servants who are listening. We need to hear from you constantly, day by day, and we need to hear from you on this topic that we'll focus on this morning. So please speak and open our hearts to hear. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How should a Christian approach money and wealth? That's the question that we began to answer last week. And if you were here or if you've listened to it, you'll recall that we started by looking at just three common approaches to money that uh, believers often take. The first is that money is evil. It's something that we should avoid. Um, We should get rid of all of it. We should take vows of poverty and live ascetic lifestyles. And I suggested that that's not a legitimate call for all of us, um, but for some, I think it is a legitimate call. And rather than swearing them off and saying, that's ridiculous, it actually would be good if we listened to them. I think God does call some people to that. We see in scriptures, uh, God called the rich young ruler to that, even though he, he didn't take up the call. And so in our overindulgent society, not a bad thing to learn from somebody who has really taken up a different path. A second approach that we looked at was that wealth is a sign of God's blessing, so we should expect it and we should seek after it. And I think that this is a um, kind of expressed in the health wealth gospel in different versions in different ways, but it's, it's really a distortion of the biblical witness, and we should not go down this road. And then a third approach we looked at was stewardship. A steward believes that everything that he or she possesses belongs to God and should be used in ways that glorify him, that are consistent with his purposes. Steward also realizes that he or she must give an accounting to the master for how the master's wealth was used. And I think stewardship is one of the best biblical approaches if we take seriously the idea that we are not owners, we are just stewards. Even if we give away generous portions of our income, so we have this tendency to think, well, the rest is mine, the rest is I can do what I want. Well, really, that's not true. All of it, 100%, your very life, everything you have belongs to the master and should be stewarded as such. So those were sort of three general approaches. We then went into 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is teaching his protege, Timothy, what he should teach to the people in Ephesus about money. And he essentially says two things, one positive and one negative. The positive thing, he says, is a Christian should pursue a lifestyle of contentment. We should be grateful for what God has given, learn to be happy with that, even if it's very little. And then on the negative side, the second thing Paul does is to warn them very strongly not to fall in love with money. Loving money he explains, can be a major temptation. It can cause great destruction and incredible pain. Using money as a tool, that's okay, but don't fall in love with it. So that was last week. That's the kind of things that we saw. Today, we're going to continue on. This is sort of part two. We're going to try to keep answering that question, how should a Christian approach money and wealth? We're also going to go back to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 where Paul returns right at the end of that letter to the subject of wealth again. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them uh, to 1 Timothy 6 and we'll begin around verse 17. 
Paul starts by saying, he's identifying his audience, he says, as for the rich in this present age. As for the rich in this present age. So he's going to tell Timothy what he should say to the rich. Now earlier, Paul had said, basically, tell people not to try to become rich. Don't make that your life goal. But of course, Paul knows that in Ephesus, there were people who were already rich. He knows that probably in the course of their lives, there are some people who would get rich, who their business would take off or they would inherit some money. So Paul doesn't have this vendetta against the rich. He's not going after them. He's not accusing them. We have to remember that Paul and Timothy are pastors. And so they're taking uh, their people in whatever station of life they're in and we're saying, hey, I want to help you walk through this in a godly way. And so that is what he's doing with the rich. Now we need to pause and ask this question, how does this passage apply to us? Because if Paul's addressing what we call the rich and we don't feel like we fit in that category, does this teaching apply at all? Regardless of our level of wealth, I think our tendency is to compare up. We can always find someone who has more than we do and say, well, in comparison to them, I'm really not that rich. And you can just kind of keep going up the ladder. And even people we think are very, very wealthy can still compare up to Bill Gates and say, well, I'm not as wealthy as him. And if you're Bill Gates, well, you're just out of luck. You're kind of at the top of the ladder. Well, instead of comparing up, one way to look at this passage is really to compare down. To say, hey, yes, there are people that have more than I do, but there's a lot of people that have less than I do. And I think that's especially true as Americans. When we compare our level of wealth to the rest of the world, even the poorest in our own country could be considered wealthy in many other places. I don't say that to shame us. Again, it's just acknowledging the fact we are one of the most wealthy civilizations in history. And so I think right from the get-go, if you live in America, you can just apply this passage to yourself straight away. But furthermore, what Paul's actually going to say really applies to everyone, regardless of wealth. I think what he's going to say really applies to a subsistence farmer in the developing world because he's teaching us some things that really go to the heart. Whether or not we have a lot, he's still teaching us how to think about money, think about material things. And so really, it applies to everyone. So don't take a hall pass and kind of check out of the sermon. Really ask God to take this and to speak to you. So in his opening words, Paul has identified his audience, the rich, He's also dropped a significant hint of where he's going. And it's a phrase that's really easy for us to just jump right over, but it's worth considering. He says he's teaching the rich in this present age. In this present age. What he means by that is that there's more than one age. There's more than one chapter to this story. The life that we're living now in this present world is not all there is. And that simple truth really frames Paul's understanding not only of how to deal with money, but really of the Christian life. The big word we looked at last week is he's living eschatologically. Eschaton just refers to the future. He's living in light of the future. He sees God's big kingdom still coming, still breaking into the world. He knows that God is bringing new creation, this new reality that will last forever. And so he wants to live every part of his life in light of what's coming, not just in light of this present age. So right from the get-go, Paul kind of speaks this humbling word to the rich. 
you're rich in this present age, he says. Yes, your riches, by implication, have no value in the age to come. And I think just that simple truth, when we, when we learn to live in light of the future, that is powerful enough to transform the way a person approaches all of life, including how we approach money and material things. But nonetheless, we find ourselves living in this world, and money is still a reality that we all have to deal with, and so Paul is going to give us some help. He's going to tell the rich two things they should not do and two things they should do. Two they should not, two things they should The first thing not to do, look at verse 17. Charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be haughty. Some translations might say conceited or arrogant. It's literally high-minded. It's to have these puffed-up thoughts about yourself, about your situation in life because of your wealth, because of your money. You see, one of the temptations of money is to independence and to power. When we have a lot of money, we can think to ourselves, oftentimes it's very subtle, I don't really need to depend on anyone else. I can take care of myself. And then wealth also gives people a lot of power, a lot of control over other people. This is expressed in the other golden rule. Have you heard the other golden rule? He who has the gold rules. So not relying on others. Controlling others can easily lead to this haughtiness, this conceit that Paul is talking about. And we've probably witnessed this. Maybe you've been out at a restaurant and you've seen someone who appeared to be wealthy and the way they treated the server was just so haughty. It was so arrogant. It was, you're here to serve me and to meet my needs. Didn't treat him as a person, but just sort of as this extension of themselves to meet their needs. Or maybe you've seen that in some other situation. That's a picture of this haughtiness, this arrogance that wealth can bring about. I think Paul is specifically directing this word to those who have uh, wealth. I mean, anyone become, can become conceited, right? Anyone can become arrogant. But there's something about this wealth that, like mosquitoes, it breeds in this, this swamp of wealth. Somehow, if, if you have a lot of money, that's this climate where this haughtiness can begin to grow. And so they need to be extra careful that they're checking their spirit that the wealth doesn't become a breeding ground for arrogance. And if they need help with that, checking their arrogance, they can refer back to that little phrase, in this present age. Right now you're rich, but it's not going to last. And that's really one of the powerful messages that comes home to us through the gospel reading that Jeremiah read. This parable about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man lived well during his life, and he didn't seem very concerned about others. And in the end, he was very humble, and his wealth didn't help him. There was a great chasm, and it couldn't buy him control or independence any longer. So first, Paul says, don't be haughty. The second thing Paul tells the rich not to do, also verse 17, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, Paul, Timothy, they're pastors. They care deeply about the rich. They're trying to shepherd their hearts. And so they're directing them away from this precarious source of hope. Money is a terrible thing in which to place your hope. 
Jesus explained this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, any earthly treasure that you have that you store up is going to be susceptible to rust, to moths, to thieves. There's no such thing as a secure earthly treasure. It's kind of ironic that we call stocks and bonds and financial instruments securities because they're actually very insecure. Hope, on the other hand, is one of the most precious things that we possess. Hope is what gets us out of bed and keeps us going in the morning. Hope is what helps us overcome difficult things. If you have hope, it is one of the most valuable things you could ever have. And so Paul's saying, don't place your hope in something as insecure as money. When it comes to hope, you need a no-risk investment. And there's only one such investment, and that is in Christ. There's absolutely no risk of placing your hope in Christ. Now, there might be suffering, there might be ups and downs, there might even be death, but there's no risk of ultimately losing your investment, your life, your hope, because Jesus will come through 100% of the time. The timing might not always be yours. You might not see it at first, but we can be assured that his love will never fail and that you'll have nothing to fear. But if you place your hope in money, you'll be an incredibly insecure person and you do have a lot to fear. So Paul tells the rich, don't be haughty and don't place your hope in wealth. Then he moves on and he tells them positively two things they should do. The first is to place their hope in God, what we just saw. It's just the opposite. Don't place your hope in wealth. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in God. But then he explains a little bit about what that means, and I think especially what it means in regards to material things and to this life. And you can see it at the end of verse 17. 17. But set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Amen. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Friends, I am so glad that this verse is in the Bible because I am a convinced Christian hedonist. A Christian hedonist is someone who is a Christian but loves pleasure, loves enjoying things. There was a time in my life when I I felt like I had this choice that I had to make between uh, dutiful obedience to God or enjoying the good things that life had to offer. Things like romantic love and beauty and music and good food and wine and travel, whatever it is for you, just those those wonderful things that we do get to enjoy in life. And I said, well, man, it's, it's either or. I either have to choose God and sort of have this, I don't know, not very pleasant existence on this earth, or I have to choose this other life and all the richness that they're, they're in. But two authors helped me realize that this really wasn't the case, that I was making a false dichotomy. The first was John Piper in his book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. I think he coined the phrase, that's where I got it from anyway. And the second was C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. Highly recommend uh, both of these, especially if you were like me and you're kind of making this either-or choice, either duty or delight. See, both Lewis and Piper are working with this idea that we are created as desiring, pleasure-loving creatures. That's a good thing. That's how we're created. It's just that ultimately we can only find our true satisfaction in God. Now, God still gives us stuff along the way, even material things, to enjoy. Lewis explains how we often um, go after something we desire 
only to discover that what we wanted while good was really just a signpost, really just something pointing us to the greater desire of God. Let me read you what he wrote. He puts it in this wonderful way. And just plug in, he's going to talk about books and music and things, but just plug in whatever that thing is for you. Lewis writes, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing themselves, They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. So we can savor these good things in life that God provides to us. We can allow them to evoke our longing, but ultimately not turn them into dumb idols, not worship those things for themselves, but allow them to point us to God. I think one of the critiques of the love of money is not that we love money too much, yes, but really that the love of money is a rather puny desire. It's a rather pathetic desire. We were really created to desire so much more. And in his same essay, uh, Lewis captures this quote you may have heard. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and we might add money when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be pleased with money. You see, people, what they do, we we go after money because we want to be rich, and we want to be rich so we can have everything. We want to have everything so we can enjoy all these things that we have. The enjoyment is not the wrong part. What Paul is saying is going after money as a way to get to the enjoyment, that's foolish. Don't do that. Don't place your hope there. It won't provide. Rather, place your hope in God, and he will richly provide you with everything to enjoy. Let him provide the right things for you at the right time, your deepest longings, because he is a father who wants to give you all of this to enjoy, to savor. But when we do the money thing, when we kind of put our hope there, we use that as the means for enjoyment of life, it puts us in the driver's seat, right? It allows us to be in control of what we get and when we get and how much we get. We don't have to depend on God anymore. This past summer on our sabbatical, uh, on the last trip that Paisley and I took, which was to the United Kingdom, had a wonderful time. Um, Before our flight home, airlines these days are just getting ridiculous, aren't they? I mean, British Airways was our airline, and they wouldn't even give you a seat at all. I mean, not, not only like the good seats, they wouldn't give you a seat at all. And 24 hours beforehand, you could log in and you could reserve a seat. I didn't really care so much where I sat, except I just wanted to sit next to Paisley. It was a long flight. We wanted to sit together, right? Reasonable desire. So um, before we, I was, I was on a train and they had wireless and I was trying to like log in and get my seats just 24 hours before and it didn't work and I was like, okay, whatever. So we got to the airport in Edinburgh and I said, hey, can we, you know, we don't have seats yet, can we sit together? And the lady said, uh, well, no, you can't do that and I don't actually have any seats for you at all. 
said, oh, great, well, you have a reservation, but you don't have seats. So she called down to London and did all these things. And finally, she was able to um, say, well, I can't get you seats together. I got you seats on the plane. Can't you get you seats together? Uh, but when you get to London, we had a short flight there first before our big flight. When you get to London, um, ask them, and, and they will you know, hopefully be able to work you out. Fine. So we get to London. I think we sit apart on the short flight from Edinburgh to London. We get there, and I ask uh, two agents. I said, could you, could you help us get, get seats together? And they said, uh, no, we, we really can't help you with that. And so I'm getting so frustrated. I remember grumbling to Paisley of like, I'm never flying British Airways again. This is ridiculous. I mean, we, we bought our seats a long time ago. I paid good money for these seats. And I, I promise, I booked probably before anyone did. I was like looking at the date. And I was why can't we just sit together? I'm getting all upset. So then we get up. They call our ticket or whatever, our row. We get up. We're getting on the plane. We think, okay, we'll just ask somebody, right? And somebody will be nice enough. We can move around. No big deal. And um, I give them our tickets, and then, some, I don't know, there was like a beep, and then she starts doing the little typey thing. And I was like, oh my goodness, are we not even going to get on a flight? Like, we haven't seen our kids in 11 days. I'm starting to get really upset. Well, then she turns to us and says, you've both been upgraded to business class. And so we get on the plane, and mind you, um, business class on an international flight is like a lazy boy and Ruth Chris steakhouse on a plane right? It's not, it's not just a wider seat. Like you got like the pod that you can like recline backwards. They bring out the menu. I'm not kidding. I had filet mignon for my little meal across the Atlantic and they bring out afternoon tea. But here's the best part. What did Paisley and I really want? We just wanted to sit together. Well, the way these little lazy boys were situated was I was facing forward. She was facing backward right next to each other. There was a little screen that came down. And so instead of talking like this to each other, now we could just have a nice, pleasant conversation. God knew what we wanted. He gave us so much more than we needed, so much more than we wanted. And I got to admit, I really enjoy the experience. <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm going to go back to coach next time, and it's just going to be. But I was convicted by it. Because what it showed me is I have such a small view of God. I'm the kid playing with the mud pies in the slum. And in my little slum, I want to control my circumstances using money to maximize my comfort and enjoyment. But even my best efforts to provide for myself, to make things go my way, lead to a frustrated and dissatisfied existence much of the time. But when we stop trusting in ourselves, when we stop using money to try to make everything go our way, and we place our hopes in God, he wants to richly provide for us beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. Now, is he always going to give us the business class answer to our prayer? No. That's not the point of the story. The point is that God's way of providing is always better than our own. It's always better timing. It's always a better solution. And a lot of the time, it's actually more. It's actually a richer provision than we could have provided with our own mud pie mentality. So that's the first thing Paul tells the rich to do. Put your hope in God. That's where you should put your hope. Oh, and by the way, he'll richly provide for you all these things to enjoy. The second thing he tells them to do is to be rich in good works. He keeps playing with this word rich. Be rich in good works, verse 18. These are the kind of riches that we are meant to pursue. And I think you can break down good works into two types from this passage. First, you have the non-monetary good works. You don't need a dime to be rich in good works. Anyone can be rich in this way. You can do good without money. You can serve someone. You can tutor a child. 
feed the homeless, show compassion, uh, give of your time and talents, love your neighbor as yourself. These are non-monetary good works, and we can be rich in these things. But Paul also identifies what we could call monetary good works. That is, using money and wealth to bless others. And in verse 18, he uses two words to describe this. He says, the rich are to be generous and ready to share. Generous, ready to share. The Greek word for generous, interesting word, only time it shows up in the New Testament. It has this connotation of liberally giving or freely imparting one's wealth. And then the word for sharing is based on the same word for fellowship in the Greek, this word koinonia. We see it come up a lot in Acts, in the early chapters of Acts, where we get these pictures of the Christian community and how they were gathering together and the kind of uh, ways they were acting, especially with money. In Acts chapter 4, we have this picture of early Christians who had wealth, um, bringing that wealth or selling it in order to provide for the community. And it wasn't forced, it was all joyfully done, but no one treated their stuff as their own that they were going to hold on to. They wanted to bless others with it. Well, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul doesn't say uh, where one should give. And he doesn't say how. He just tells us, be liberally generous, be ready to share. But in some of his other letters, um, Paul will give further instructions on giving. Um, And rather than kind of preaching a whole sub-sermon on those, I've just collected some of these ideas on a sheet of paper. So look around you, grab one of these sheets of paper. One side says, how should I give? And the other says, where should I give? I'm not going to go through all these, but... The how is regularly, proportionally, joyfully. Regularly, proportionally, joyfully. There's a couple little verses on there and a short explanation of, well, how should I give? These aren't exhaustive, but this will give you sort of a good place to start. And in the back of it, where should I give? The local church, the spread of the gospel, the relief of the poor. So I want you to take this sheet of paper and take it home, read through it, pray through it, um, and use this as just a tool to, to be intentional to be prayerful about your giving. We don't do a pledge process as a church, but we do believe it's important that um, at least once a year, if not a few times during the year, every individual, every family says, hey, how are we giving? Are are we giving um, regularly? Are are we giving proportionally? Are we giving, I think, and most important, are we giving joyfully? And then where are we doing our giving? And I have some different ideas about that. So take that home and uh, use that as a tool. But I want to conclude this morning with verse 19. Because I think here Paul answers the why question. Well, why should we give? He writes that when the rich are generous, when they're ready to share, they are thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Storing up a good foundation taking hold of that which is truly life. As I read those words over and over, it struck me that they sound a little bit like a retirement commercial. It's like like Pacific Life or whatever. If you watch the Super Bowl tonight, I guarantee you're going to see at least one or two of these, unless they're too expensive, because it's really expensive tonight, right? You know, the message of these type of commercials is to make good financial choices now so that you have a good foundation for the future in order that you may live the good life. And then it always has these pictures, right? Whether it's of a whale jumping or playing with your grandkids next to the lake. Some picture that evokes this longing in us for the good life. It's easy to criticize those commercials. They speak a powerful message. I think they pull on that longing that each one of us have towards the good life. 
They cause us to explore, what is my image of the good life? But they're designed to make you ask a question. What am I doing now to prepare for the future so that I can enjoy life? What am I doing now to prepare for the future so that I can enjoy life? Here's the thing, friends. Paul has exactly the same message. He does. It's just that his planning is on a much, much larger scale. It's not for your 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's for eternity. It's for forever. A financial advisor will tell you to maximize your 401k or buy the biggest insurance policy you can afford so that you can enjoy life later. In a similar way, Paul is saying, maximize your giving, your generosity in this life. Give away as much as you can so that in God's future, in the age to come, you can take hold of that which is truly life, the real good life. It's the only life that's really worth sacrificing for. Now, Paul's not saying that you can buy your way into heaven. Not at all. We, we read from the rest of his letters, only faith in the blood of Christ can purchase your salvation. But he is saying quite clearly that there is a connection between how we treat money in this life and the effect it has in God's future. And it seems that he's saying the more generous we are now, the more life we'll be able to take hold of and enjoy in the future that goes on and on and on. So friends, let me ask you a question. Are you planning for your true retirement? Not in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, but your retirement, your rest, your internal enjoyment of God in the life to come. Are you making the decisions today that will help you take hold of life, which is truly life in the future. Let's pray.